This morning I'm going to um, finish off uh, our series on Unlocking the Kingdom, which is, uh, yeah, I was really excited to, to be able to finish off this series. It's been a, it's been a good one. Um, I guess something for me, I always get really excited because this series has kind of been looking through the Gospel of Luke and uh, seeing through the words of Jesus how, how we can unlock the kingdom. And I always get really excited when we talk about, oh, can I have the first one up please, Hannes? I always get really excited when we talk um, about the Gospel of Luke because, um, I mean, I, did, I mentioned it a few years ago now, but the thing that really excites me about this Gospel is it was the first Gospel to come to Porirua. So I just find that really exciting. You see the ways that it's unlocked things in Porirua before, and so that it just really excites me to go back into the Gospel of Luke, knowing what it's done here, uh, where we are before. So I, just, I thought I'd just go over that story again for people who weren't here. I just find it really exciting. So we start off, this is our, our main character of the story. I'm sure it's not uh, exactly what he looked like. So this is a chief called Wiramu Ngakuku, who's from up north. Um, and he was based in Metamata, you know where Hobbiton is now? So that's where he was based. There was actually a missionary station. He was a Christian chief uh, up north. So they were, they were in Metamata, and things began to get a bit dangerous. Some of the other local iwis were beginning to you know, want to take them out a bit and not... Not in a good way. And um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and so they decided to make the trip over to Tauranga um, just for their safety. So off he goes with his people. And this is his daughter. He had a 12 year old daughter at the time called Torore. And um, she traveled with them as well on this kind of uh, one to um, Tauranga. Now, while they were going over there, they, um, they made camp. And uh, while they were all sleeping, uh, a whole Iwi tribe kind of was there and they kind of attacked them during the middle of the night, scattering Ngakuku and Torore and all of their group just completely scattered, ran for the hills. Um, now, when uh, they'd kind of run away and hidden in the bush, suddenly Ngakuku thought, where's my daughter? And suddenly realised his daughter was gone. Um, and as he shouts out, the, the, the tribe that have come and kind of scattered them, they shout back, well, we've got your daughter. Um, Oh, come and, just come and get her. That's, it's going to be okay. Just come and get your daughter. And he's like, well, it's not, it's not going to work. So basically, they're just enticing him in to kill him as well. Um, and so what happens is um, the next day after this uh, group have left, they find Tororo's been killed. Um, and Ngakuku obviously devastated at the loss of his daughter. Now, even though Ngakuku was, was heartbroken at the loss of his daughter, as anyone would be, um, as I said, he'd become a Christian. The gospel had impacted Ngakuku so profoundly that I don't know how much you know, but back in the day, utu was the big word, meaning revenge, was if someone did something to hurt you, you go back and you hurt them back. And so all of his guys are saying, well, let's go back. You know, they've really wronged you. Let's go back and, and hurt this tribe back. And Ngakuku managed to say, hang on a minute. This isn't what we're about. And I love the words he says because what he says, he goes, actually, Christ has prepared many mansions for my daughter. That's how strong his faith was. He goes, I know, I know where she is at the moment. I don't need to go and seek revenge. I know she's in a better place right now. I find that really heart-stirring, just that part of it there. Now, what Tororo used to carry on her was she used to carry a necklace. Now, on that necklace was actually a copy of the Gospel of Luke, which is where we tie in. <laughs> and what happened was when this um, raiding tribe had come and killed his daughter, they'd also stolen this necklace of the Gospel of Luke, this one warrior. Now this warrior, he went back to his, um, his tribe, he was from Rotorua. He went back there and began to read through this gospel and was just amazed. Like this is so different to anything he would have read before. 
You know, you, the words of Jesus are a lot different to Utu and revenge that, that he was probably used to hearing. And he was saying, he basically was in Rotorua and he said, is there anyone here who can explain this to me? And so luckily there was one guy who was a, a, a Maori missionary from up north and he was there and he began to explain the gospel of Luke to this guy. Now the gospel of Luke impacted this warrior so much that what he did is from Rotorua, he then walked all the way up to Tauranga where he found Ngākuku just to apologise to him. Now I'm sure this warrior would have, as I said before, been familiar with the ways of Utu and probably would have wondered if he was going to get out of that alive, of going back. But that's how profoundly the gospel impacted him as he falls at Ngākuku's feet asking for forgiveness. Now back to Rotorua, there was the man I said, the missionary from up north who had kind of explained the gospel of Luke. What he does then is this guy goes down south. He comes to Porirua where he meets a man called Tamihana Tropraha. If you might recognize the, the last name <laughs> from Toropraha Arena. Toropraha was the famous chief who invented the haka, the kamate haka that the All Blacks do. And this was his son. And his son was beginning to talk to this missionary. And him and his son, and also his cousin, they began to get really, really passionate about this as they began to hear the gospel for the first time. And they were just amazed by it. And they were saying, teach us more, teach us more, we want to know more. And there's only so much this missionary could teach them without having more books. So he sends away for books from up north. And Ngākuku from, from Tauranga sends this little um, copy of the Gospel of Luke that's now found his way into his hands again. And that is how the, gospel, the first copy of the gospel, any of the Gospels reached Porirua. And you see the impact that that has on our nation. Tami Hana Taropraha, he was an amazing man. And him and his, um, him and his cousin, Mateni Tafifi, they continue to just want more. They're so hungry, so hungry for more of God. And they get so stirred and so passionate about it that they begin to go, they go up north a little ways up to Waikanae and Ōtaki. And they begin to talk to all of their friends about this amazing gospel, this amazing truth that they've heard. And so they go to their friends at Waikanae and their whanau at Waikanae. And they, they're just like, wow, this is amazing. And they really embrace it at Waikanae. So they go further up to Ōtaki and they begin to share it with them. And the, his friends and his whanau at Ōtaki, they basically turn around and say, look, you better stop talking to us about this. Like, just completely rejecting. Please say, if you keep doing this, then we're, we're going to burn your books and we're just going to completely disown you. We don't want anything to do with it. And I just think it's amazing. You see, the thing I love about when you hear about new Christians, people coming to Christ for the first time, and you know how deeply it impacts them because they're just so passionate about it. And that's when you can really tell. So this doesn't deter him or put him off the gospel at all. It just means he goes over to Mana Island and him and his cousin sit on Mana Island and just meditating on God, meditating on the Bible. Completely not put off by the fact that his family and his friends just want to completely disown him. I just think, man, Gospel of Luke's done some amazing things in this land, hasn't it? And not only then, but he goes down, down south to an iwi called Ngaitahu. And I don't know if you know, but... Um, Ngāti Toa, which is the local iwi of Purirua, which uh, Tamihana was, was a part of, they were uh, really at odds with Ngaitahu, obviously just across the water. There were lots of wars going on. Toropraha had been down there before and caused lots of fighting. But what Tamihana does is Tamihana goes back down south to share the gospel with this, his enemy tribe. And the enemy tribe, when they first hear that he's coming back down south, they go, oh no, this isn't good. This means Toropraha is going to come down. This is just like a scout for a raiding party. And they begin to freak out. And Tamihana's going, no, this isn't what it's about. You know, I've come to, to, to say, look, there's something greater than the Iwi. There's something greater than us. And that is this gospel. That is the love of Jesus Christ. And I just, I don't know. I just hear that story. It never gets old to me, that story. When we hear what the gospel of Luke has done in this land already. I know that the gospel has power. We know that the gospel has power. We know that it continues to have power today. It excites me. So I'm going to be speaking today on uh, Luke 24. 
Um, everyone's probably going, oh no, Sam, that sounds like it's towards the end of the gospel. And we know that Jesus always calls people out to the nations from the end. And you always go on about the nations. So people are probably... <laughs> and I am talking a little bit about the nations. A little bit. A little bit. You weren't completely... Yeah. <laughs> So what I want to talk about is uh, Luke 24, verse 46 to 47. That's a picture of Tami Hanna there. Turn to it if you want to. It says this. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So the first part that I really want to focus on, and probably for the majority of the talk, isn't, isn't the second part, which is the part where the gospel goes to the nations. What I want to focus on mostly today is the part which is, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. You see, one of the things I've been just pondering to myself and, and maybe chatting with a few friends recently is, it's just kind of the importance of sacrifice, I think. I think if we want to see the kingdom unlocked in this nation, we're going to have to learn how to sacrifice things a bit more than we do. I think in the West we can get so comfortable with, with what we've got and the things we have. But I think God has given us so much, which means we have so much to sacrifice and to give back to him. And I think if we really want to see the kingdom unlocked, it's going to require a lot of sacrifice, a lot of surrender, and in that maybe a bit of suffering as well. So let's have a look. What does sacrifice mean? So I was did the old online dictionary thing. I came up with a few. Destruction or, or surrender of something for the sake of something else. Or the surrender or destruction of something prized or desirable for the sake of something considered as having a higher or more pressing claim. And I was kind of thinking when I was looking at sacrifice, I kind of looked through the Bible and I thought, and not just through the Bible, but just through the way the, the world is and the way the world works, is you don't seem to get anywhere unless you sacrifice something. You look at all Olympic athletes, you look at great sportsmen, you look at uh, the great people, Martin Luther King, those guys, they've all sacrificed things. And I thought, well, maybe there's something in that. Maybe there's something that as a church that we need to learn to do a bit more if we want to see the kingdom unlocked in where we are. So first of all, I want to have a look at this guy. You don't know who this guy is, Michael Phelps. 19-time Olympic gold medals. Just a few. He's 31 years old at the moment, 6 foot 4, 84 kgs, and size 14 feet. Wow. Almost as big as Joe's. Now, this is how much this guy eats, right? He eats 12,000 calories a day. <laughs> For his breakfast, okay, I'm just going to point at this. Oh, this has got a laser on it. This is his breakfast here. Half of it. Okay? For breakfast, he eats three fried egg sandwiches, five more eggs in an omelette, three chocolate chip pancakes, three sugar-coated slices of French toast, and a bowl of porridge. For breakfast. <laughs> Bit of a trooper. For his lunch, he eats about half a kg of pasta, two ham and cheese sandwiches, and it says here energy drinks, but I don't know what type of energy drinks they are. Surely it's not like V's and things. You wouldn't think so with a professional athlete. But that's his half a kg of pasta. Me and Stacey have maybe half of that for our dinner. And he has that and these sandwiches for his lunch. <laughs> and then for his dinner, because he must love the pasta so much, he goes for another <laughs> bowl of pasta. Then he has a whole pizza almost every day. And more energy drinks. This guy 
just eats so, so much, and is only 86 kgs. Don't we all envy him? Don't we all envy him? <laughs> he trains for six hours a day. That's in the pool and on land, doing weights and obviously the pool time. The rest of the time, he's probably trying to eat all that food because it's so much of it there. <laughs> he does that for six days a week, and if his training day falls on Christmas, then he still trains on Christmas Day. Just no, no rest days for this guy, just the one rest day. He swims about 12.8 kilometres a day, which is just under 80 kilometres by the end of his six days. He has two massages every day. Just thought that would be important. And he takes ice, bath, ice baths every day to help his body recover. You could say that this guy's fairly dedicated to what he does. <laughs> I mean, some of the sacrifices that Michael Phelps might have to make is probably sacrificing time with his family if he's out training this much. Probably sacrificing the local community because he eats all their food. It's probably... <laughs> Sacrifices time away from his family because he's often out and swimming in different competitions. And I love this. He says, when he goes away, people, he says, people say to me, you're so lucky, you get to see the world. But I don't. I go to the hotel and to the pools and back again. That's it. So he goes to all these amazing places, but is literally just seeing swimming pools all the time. He eats meals that are designed to make him the best he can be. I don't see any chocolate or ice cream on there. I did see a lot of pizza. <laughs> Apparently that makes them good. And I think in order, because what this does is basically is just his lifestyle. Six days a week, he's committed to it, and he's got 19 gold medals. He must be doing something right there, I'd say. He makes a lot of sacrifices, but in the end of the day, he's coming home with the results. And I just think that for us as well, we have to look about some of the sacrifices that we should be making as Christians if we want to see the kingdom unlocked in our nation. Matthew 13 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and brought that field. I quite like this story. This man, I don't know what he's doing in this field, finds this amazing treasure, goes home, sells everything he has, his house, any land he has, probably any, any other possessions he has. His wife's probably thinking, I really hope that treasure's still there by the time we go back. <laughs> now that they've sold all of this, but he gives up absolutely everything he has to go back for that treasure. He sacrifices everything he has, hoping that this treasure is going to be there when he gets back. But sacrificing isn't something that we like to do in the West. You know, we don't like suffering. We don't like anything going wrong in the West. Do you know that Western culture is one of the only cultures in the world that tries to avoid suffering like we do? that most other cultures, they see it as a road to somewhere. They see it as, as something that's got to happen in order for them to get somewhere. But in the West, we avoid it. It's the worst thing. We, we think of anything we can to, if we suffer a little bit, then we must be doing something wrong. Oh, we, we should go back, get rid of that. You always think of ways just to avoid it. A guy called Dr. Paul Brand argues this in his book. He says, It is because the meaning of life in the United States is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom that suffering is so traumatic for Americans. Maybe that's the same in New Zealand. I, while I was kind of preparing for this talk, I was having a look at... Um, I don't know if this symbol is familiar to anybody. So what's happening in Iraq and Syria was with ISIS and, and everything going in and uh, obviously causing heaps of damage. What this symbol is, it's basically it's the Arabic letter N. And what happens is 
If you're a Christian in Iraq or Syria, then and ISIS come along, they will brand your house with this, with this letter N, which stands for Nasara, which is the name they call Jesus, the Nazarene, meaning the followers of the Nazarene. And what happens is the house gets branded with this. They later, ISIS or whoever it is, will come back to the house and say, look, these are your, these are what your options. Basically, you have to financially support the jihad. You have to give your daughters to support the jihad. Or you have to turn to Islam. And those are the three options they get. Now, I'm just so amazed. As I was watching this, just like a five-minute clip. I was just so amazed at the amount of Syrian and Iraqi Christians who turn around and say, you know what, Jesus is more important than this. And so they basically just get kicked out of their homes and just do these massive tricks, absolutely, have absolutely nothing. And I was watching it, and it's these terrible scenes as all these uh, poor Middle Eastern people are kind of just without anything, you know, completely gone. But then they interview them and they go, but we know Jesus is enough. Jesus has said that. God has said he was going to provide for us, and he's providing. And you just think, Wow. When we read the Bible and Jesus says, you know, though, uh, I'm persecuted, therefore you're going to get persecuted. We don't have a clue what that means in the West, do we? We don't have a clue. But we see what some people go through. And I, I just wonder, is the, maybe is the Western church getting soft? Maybe if we were to be told that, would our response be to respond saying, yes, Jesus, we're still going to go for you? I don't know. I just want to put it out there. But I'm just so amazed at, at Christians who can turn around and say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to sacrifice this for you, our, our family. We're just going to go and live completely for you. It just amazes me. Now, something that quite, is quite interesting about the Bible, and I, you probably, if you've been reading the Bible, something you probably understand, is that what the Bible does is it can tell you two contrary things, and they're both right. I don't know if you've seen it in the Bible. It completely confuses me sometimes. So, for example, it can be a bit like this. Say I, was to, say I was blind and I was to ask somebody to describe this coin to me. They might say, well, it's got a very old bird on it, um, four ferns on it. Okay, okay, this, if I can't see anything, okay, that's cool. And then say I've got someone standing on the other side of this coin going, well, it's got a very old bird on it. And... <laughs> Or this side's got a picture of a queen on it. And I've, I'm hearing two completely different things. Are both of them true? Yes. But what are they both doing? They're giving me a greater view of what the coin is, aren't they? Instead of just getting one point, one perspective on what this coin is, I now have a greater appreciating, pre- appreciation of what the coin looks like. Now, sometimes scripture can be like that. Now, one of the things that we often hear about it is, kind of a good example of it is the kingdom has come, but the kingdom has not yet come. That's kind of a big one that we hear all the time. John Piper says this about it. Is the kingdom of God a future reality to be hoped for or a present reality to experience now? The answer is that it is partly present and partly future. Many of its blessings are here to be enjoyed now, but many of them are not yet here. Some of its power is available now, but not all of it. Some of the curse and misery of this old age can be overcome now by the presence of the kingdom, but some of it cannot be. The decisive battle against sin and Satan and sickness and death has been fought and won by the king in his death and resurrection, but the war is not over. Sin must be fought, Satan must be resisted, sickness must be prayed over and groaned under, and death must be endured until the second coming of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. Now that's saying that we see as we begin to step out in praying for the sick, don't we? We pray, 
And sometimes they get better, and sometimes they don't. The kingdom is here, and the kingdom's not yet here. Yet we believe that those things are equally true, don't we? Now, I think there's something else that we've been looking a lot at over the last few years, which is like that. And I think that is the Father heart of God. Now, the Father heart of God is completely 100% true. I'm not doubting it, but I think there's something that has got to come alongside it as well in order for us to have a complete picture of, of God and, and, and what he thinks. Some people describe it to me as uh, like a train on the railway tracks. You need these two separate beliefs, which are kind of contrary. They are separate, but you need both of them to keep the train on the track, don't you? You take one of those tracks away and the train's just going to fall off. But we need both of these to understand it. Now, what do we believe about the Father heart of God? Now, we've been looking at this as a church for, I don't know how long, five years, six years, something like that? And it's amazing. I, for me, I'm only, I'm a bit slow off the mark, I'm only beginning to get into it now and realizing it for the first time. And it's amazing. I've just finished reading a book by this guy, Jack Frost, and it's really impacting me. And from what we, we see, you know, we begin to know these verses off by heart. The Romans 8 verse, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We know it. Don't we love the fact that we're sons and daughters of God? That we are cherished, we are loved sons and daughters of God. Romans 8 also says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. How many, how many people in this room over the last six years got blown away by reading, rereading that again, that we're co-heirs with Christ? Lawrence, Phil. It's amazing, isn't it? That, that as we understand these things. And I mean, one of the most, probably one of the biggest standout things that's been as we've been learning about the Father Heart was, to be honest, the song that Joe sung last week. How amazing was Joe last week? I actually looked up that song well, uh, during the week, because I thought it was so good, Joe absolutely kills it better than, better than the guys who do it originally. It's a bit of a, a cheesy 80s song, but Joe made it really amazing. It was really good. And the w lyrics were, When he ran to me, he took me in his arms, held my head to his chest and said, My son's come home again. He lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes. With forgiveness in his voice, he said, Son, do you know I still love you? He caught me by surprise when God ran. I, that, those lyrics just blew me up. I love that, that he caught me by surprise. I think that lyric really caught me when, we were, when Joe sung that. It's amazing. And you know, these are amazing, amazing, amazing truths that we do still need to know. I'm not taking anything away from what these truths are. Remember, we've got to completely believe both of these. But the thing is, the other part of it that we have to believe is, you know, where the Father comes and he hugs us and it's, and it's amazing, but there's another part of it, which is that Jesus also calls us to count the cost as well. That that's what we're called to do. Well, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Many people pushed to get near him. They wanted to hear the word of God. Jesus saw two boats on the shore. The fishermen were not there because they were washing their nets. Jesus got into a boat which belonged to Simon. Jesus asked him to push it out a little way from the land. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, push out into the deep water. Let down your nets for some fish. Simon said to him, teacher, we've worked all night and we've caught nothing. But because you told me to, I will let the net down. When they had done this, they caught so many fish, their nets started to break. They called to their friends working in the other boats to come and help them. They came and both boats were so full of fish, they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he got down at the feet of Jesus. He said, go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. He and all those with him were surprised and wondered about the many fish. 
James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were surprised also. They were working together with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will fish for men. When they came to land with their boats, they left everything and followed Jesus. Do you know that that's what Jesus calls us to do as Christians? He calls us to give up everything to follow him. You know, I think this is really just hitting me for the first time as I've been thinking over, over the last few weeks. That, yes, we have complete free access to the Father as the Father welcomes us home. But there's also, it is one sense, but in another sense, we have to count the cost as well. That Peter, he gave up everything to follow Jesus. That the James and John, it says later on, in, uh, in, in Luke, it says that they left their father sitting in the boat with, with the nets. They gave up everything and on the spot just left their father in the boat. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. I don't know if you know, but it says in, in the Bible, it talks about Peter's mother-in-law, meaning that Peter was a married man as well. So I think sometimes we can, we can come up with excuses as why we don't want to just give up everything for, for Jesus, can't we? We can think of so many excuses. Work needs me. Family needs me. And these are legitimate excuses. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, if Jesus was to walk through today and say, come follow me, what would your response be to that? In Luke 14, it talks about the cost of being a disciple. It says, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Whoa, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there was enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 can defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. I think that this is the truth of the gospel as well, isn't it? That there is a sense where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I'll give you rest. But there's a sense where he also says, you come and you give up everything. I just, I just don't want to get so caught up in just one side of these railway tracks that we miss the other side of the railway tracks. That we miss that we have to give everything to Jesus. You know what? The most common word for Jesus in the Bible was, in the New Testament, was kyrios, which means teacher and master and Lord. Now, when I talk to Jesus, do we talk to King Jesus? Do you know that the only time I can find where Jesus is referred to as our brothers is when he's talked about as our co-heirs. And so I must say, Jesus, you're, before anything, you're my master, you're my Lord. And that's what I must say to Jesus. Because that's what I see in the New Testament. That's how they refer to him. is my king. And I say, well, I've just got to give up everything for my king. I just want to... The thing is, what I love about this church is that we just so want more of Jesus, don't we? Doesn't everybody in this church just want so much more of Jesus? And I think that's a really, really rare thing to find in church. That when I'm leading worship, to look out and to see so many people lost in worship for such a love and a passion for Jesus, I just think, wow, we're, 
we're so lucky that we've got kids growing up seeing so many people passionate for this Jesus. So I, I know we're not in the wrong, but I just want to say there's two different things there, and I just really want us to, to try and catch both of those hearts behind it. I'm just going to pray. Oh, King Jesus, that's what we say. You are our King, and you are good. We say you are our Father, and you are good. The way that you love us without expecting anything from us, but also on the other half, the fact that we're called to give our lives to this, we say you are so good. We say you're so good, Jesus. Jesus.